You know, a person may have strength, but not courage. Or a person may have courage and not have strength. We need courage and strength. And that 27th Psalm that Tim kind of closed with there, the last two verses says this, I had fainted, except I believed to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And I think that's you. I think that's the Lord's church today. I had fainted lest I believed to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Be of good courage, and he shall strengthen thine heart. And wait, I say, on the Lord. There you have the strength, and there you have the courage. Um, almost changed my mind what I want to speak on this morning. I think I'll, I'll go ahead and stick with where I'm at. Uh, I would like to take you to the book of Acts chapter 16 this morning. Uh, Acts chapter 16, uh, we're going to find the Lord opening and, and closing some things. It's very important for us to notice. The book of Acts is such a beneficial and profitable book in terms of showing how the church should operate and how the church should function. It shows us how uh, if gospel laborers are going to be blessed, what must be in place. It shows us that every time where there is a successful effort by the apostles, that the Lord went ahead of them. The Lord preceded them. And the Lord must always go before the preacher, or the preacher's labor certainly will be in vain. But even then, he must have the guiding hand of the Lord. He must have the presence of the Lord and the blessings of the Lord if his labors are going to be fruitful. Now, the last part of Acts 15 ends with Paul and Silas being companions. And then they start off on a journey, and they pick up another young minister, or a young minister by the name of Timothy. And the 16th chapter of Acts represents one of three sections in the book of Acts that we call we sections. That's W-E. And the reason I say we, W-E, is because Luke is the human writer of the book of Acts. Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke, and he wrote the book of Acts. And as he uh, records all the things in the 28 chapters of Acts, there are times that Luke was not with Paul, and there are times that Luke was with Paul. So when you see the word they, Luke is saying, I'm not with them. When you see the word we, Luke is saying, I was with them. And you'll find three we sections in the book of Acts, Acts 16, Acts 20, and Acts 27 and 8. So here's the first we section where Luke is actually a companion of Paul and Silas and Timothy. And the first thing they did, they went into the uh, areas where they'd been before to confirm the, the souls of where they had, they had preached the gospel and had uh, successful labors. And they went and they delivered the decrees that were established by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem to these churches and established them in the faith. I want you to notice they didn't establish them in faith. They established them the faith. There's a difference in faith and the faith. Faith is what all born-again children of God possess. When you're born of the Spirit of God, God gives you something called faith. And with that faith, you're able to believe in Him whom you have not seen with the natural eyes. That faith enables you to trust in the one whom you, again, have not seen. It's like Moses. Read about him in Hebrews chapter 11. It says, you know, by faith... Moses chose to suffer affliction with the people of God and enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. And it says, by faith, see in him that could not be seen. <laughs> you 
he saw God that Pharaoh couldn't see, but he saw him with the eyes of faith. But the faith is that body of truth that was delivered to the apostles by the Lord Jesus Christ, and he instructed them to go and to teach all nations and teach them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you to do. As I've said in times past, they didn't have the authority to teach more than that, but they had the great responsibility to teach not less than that. They would teach exactly that, nothing more and nothing less. And after this took place, we find where Paul and Silas and again Timothy and Luke uh, desired to go into Asia, but the Bible says God forbid them to do that. And then they was going to go to a place called Bithynia, and the Holy Spirit suffered them not to go. Here we see where God closed two doors where they could have areas where they could have went into and preached the gospel where I know God had children. You say, well, how do you know that, Brother Lawrence? By continuing to read the book of Acts. For well, one thing, you get to Acts chapter 18, Acts chapter 20, you'll find where gospel labor is extended to these areas. But if you look in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, says, Peter, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So here's the two areas. They were going to go to Asia. God forbid them. They were going to go to Bithynia. The Holy Spirit suffered them not. So they did what they needed to do. They acted wisely. They just stayed right where they were at until they got clear direction of God. Now that's still good advice today. You as an individual... You don't have to be a preacher for this to apply to you, but it certainly applies to the ministry. Uh, we need to remain right where we're at sometimes before taking a step. If we're unsure, uh, we need to continue to stay where we're at and pray till we have a clear indication. So that's what they're doing. And then Paul had a vision at night. And in that vision, and you might say, well, Brother Lawrence, I thought you said before that God doesn't direct us with visions and dreams. Well, God can do anything he wants to, but generally speaking, he does because now we have a complete Bible. When this happened to Paul, he didn't have a complete Bible. <laughs> He's going to be the writer of the majority of the New Testament himself. So the Lord is directing him in a little different way than I expect to be directed. Now, it says uh, he had a vision in the night, and a man appeared unto him, from Philippi, saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. I want you to remember, this is a man that appears in this vision. The scripture says, feeling assuredly the next morning that God was in the matter, that God had called us to go here to preach the gospel to them. This was the evidence they were needing as to where they should go. So we see where God closed some doors, two different directions. Then he opens a door. Here a door is open of God. And that's what we've always believed and preached as old Baptist, primitive Baptist, that the gospel preacher should go where the Holy Spirit guides him and directs him. He should go where God opens up the door of opportunity. Uh, he should walk by faith and travel by faith and go where he thinks God would send him and be and, and trusting that the Lord will be with him and bless his efforts. That's what we see here uh, in the life of Paul and these men. Now, you're going to find Paul's name mentioned primarily, but there, there's four of these men here. So they travel over there. We pick this up in verse 11. Therefore, loosing from Troas, we came with a straight course to uh, Samothracia, and the next day to Neapolis, and from thence to Philippi, which is the chief city of that part of Macedonia and a colony, and we're in that city abiding certain days. Now, Philippi was a colony of the Roman Empire. 
And what a colony was, was a territory owned by the Roman Empire. And they would send Roman citizens to that part of the country for them to live and to dwell there, to have a Roman presence in that colony. And oftentimes it was retired military personnel. And as a reward for that, they get political favors. And one of them was they didn't have to pay any taxes. That's a pretty good incentive. <laughs> they didn't have to pay any taxes. So they find that the city of Philippi had a strong Roman influence too. And I think we'll see here, there was just a few Jewish people there, but not enough for a synagogue. It took 10 Jewish men to establish a synagogue. I don't believe there's a synagogue here because that was Paul's custom when he went into a city. If there was a synagogue, a Jewish synagogue, that's the first place he went. He went there and began to preach the gospel to the Jews to get a foothold, you might say, in that particular area. So they're abiding there certain days. So they've been there a little while. Nothing seems to be happening out of the ordinary. But it said on the Sabbath, we went out of the city by a riverside where prayer was wont to be made, and we sat down and spake to the women which resorted thither. Now, I, I, I like the riverside uh, pictures we have in the scriptures. You know, in the book of Ezekiel, in chapter 1, you'll find where Ezekiel and the children of Israel was in Babylonian captivity. But it says, We sat down by the river Shabar, and heaven opened, and we saw great visions. Now, God gave Ezekiel great revelations by the riverside. We look in Psalms 1. starts off like this. Blessed be the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth the way of sinners, nor seeth in the seed of the scornful. But his delight shall be in the law of God, and it doth he meditate day and night, and he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, and shall bring forth his fruit in due season. You see the picture, the serenity, the peacefulness. Have you ever been uh, in the woods, perhaps up in the mountains, took a little hike, and you come to a creek flowing through the trees, and you just want to sit on a rock and just sit there a while and experience and enjoy the tranquility and the peacefulness, you know, and the quietness, just, just hearing nature. <laughs> this dear brother in North Carolina, he, he said, I like to get up and hear daybreak. <laughs> what he meant by that, he liked to be up early enough we could see the sun rise, hear the birds begin to chirp, you know, the leaves begin to rustle. The things, the noise you hear that's so pleasant in the beginning of a day. So they go to the riverside. That was a wonderful place to go. Didn't go to the synagogue. I don't believe there was one there. Didn't have a church to attend like you have here. So they go to the riverside, and when they get there, lo and behold, there are some women there that have met for the same reason. They're all there for prayer. Now, one of these women happens to be a woman of the name of Thyatira, excuse me, a Lydia of the city of Thyatira. Now, Thyatira was about 240 miles from Philippi. This woman had traveled from Thyatira over here to Philippi about 240 miles. That's 240 miles in biblical days. It takes you a little bit longer than that to uh, travel 240 back then. It does 240 today. But right over here is a place called Troas. And this is where Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke have been in Troas. But the Lord has showed them to leave Troas and go to Philippi. Over here we find where Lydia has left Thyatira and traveled over here to Philippi. And they're going to meet together. I love the providence of God. I love when I see the evidence of God being in something. 
don't you? Now, if you go to the book of Revelation, read chapter 1, you're going to read seven churches in Asia Minor. One of those churches in a place called Thyatira, right? And there's going to be a church at Philippi. And this 16th chapter of the book of Acts is going to teach you how the church at Philippi came into existence. Now, about three weeks ago, we spoke to you from the first chapter of 1 Thessalonians. And we established our study in Acts chapter 17 that this church got founded or established, organized, in less than a month. Now, that's highly unusual in this present day and age for something like that to happen. I've been part of a, a few churches that was organized and constituted in my lifetime. And, um, and, and it took a lot longer than 30 days. I can assure you that. Most time, it'll take a year or two years of meeting and praying and looking for evidence that the Lord is in the arrangement to plant a church in a certain area. And here it's going to take a little longer than a month. But here is the foundation of the church at Philippi, which a letter will be written by the Apostle Paul later on, the letter to the Philippians, right? And you can see why Paul was so close to this church when you study how it was founded. So here in this chapter, we find where Paul now believes he's where he's supposed to be, along with Luke, along with Timothy, along with Silas. And they're by the riverside. And this woman from Thyatira is there, and she's a seller of purple. That was one of the many guilds, as you will find, uh, in, in Thyatira. It was a rich town in that particular, a rich city. And uh, she's traveled a long ways to sell uh, her goods. Uh, don't know exactly why. I guess it was just, uh, you know, well, I believe the promise of God was in, in this situation. But 240 miles is a long way to travel. So maybe she had set up a branch over there. You know, I don't know. But anyway, uh, we're told this about her. But then it says, and the Lord opened her heart that she attended to the things that Paul spoke. Now, I want you to understand there's a difference in a changed heart and an opened heart. There's a difference in that. When God borns his children of the Spirit of God, he doesn't open the heart. He changes the heart. And you find this illustrated in Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 25. You find where the Lord is dealing with his people, and he says, I will take out that stony heart. Notice how he describes it, that stony heart in flesh. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. All right, I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit, and I'll take out that stony heart of flesh out of the flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Here's a heart of flesh in contrast to a stony heart. He takes the stony heart out. He doesn't open up that heart. What you going to get if you open up stone? You just got still got stone, right? No, no benefit there. So he takes the stony heart out, puts a heart of flesh in the flesh. Now there's been a change. Now that's to teach us when God borns you the Spirit of God again, he takes out that old stony heart of human nature, gives you a heart of flesh. In other words, there's no life in stone, but there is life in flesh, right? Flesh symbolizes life. Stone symbolizes that which is lifeless. And a person before being born of the Spirit of God is lifeless. And at one point, it seems so clear, it's so difficult to get across to people, it seems like. They'll read texts like, say, Isaiah 55, 1. Oh, every one of you that thirsteth, come ye to the waters. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Now, who is he writing that to? People that are thirsty. I've never seen a dead person thirst yet. Have you? Have you ever seen a person that was dead express a thirst or a hunger or anything? Well, of course you have not. He speaks to somebody who is alive in a spiritual sense in that text. 
You know, when the Lord said in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for my yoke is easy, my burden is light, and you shall find rest to your soul. I've never found a, a dead man. I've never seen a dead man laboring. I've never seen a, a dead man feeling the weight of sin or whatever. You know, you could take two men and lay them down on the floor, one dead and one alive, and take a 300-pound weight and lay it on the dead man. He wouldn't feel anything. It wouldn't bother him a bit. He's dead. He's not going to feel it. But put a 300-pound weight on the man that's got life. You don't think he'll feel that weight? <laughs> you might want to break it down to 100 pounds, I guess. We don't want to kill him, you know. <laughs> but anyway, the, the point being that he will feel the weight. The dead man will not feel the weight. So we find here that Lydia's heart was open. Now, who opened the heart? God did. Now, we've already found where God closed two doors of opportunity of gospel labor. And he's opened up a door in Philippi of Macedonia. Now he opens up something else. God specializes in opening and closing. If you look in Luke chapter 24, after the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, when he's walking on the road to Emmaus with those two disciples, you'll find, first of all, he closes their eyes. Their eyes are holding. Later on, after communicating with them and going into their house, it says their eyes, he opened their eyes. And then it ends by saying he opened their understanding. And that's basically what's happening here when it says that the Lord opened up the heart of Lydia, that he's opening her understanding because he's about to bless her to hear some words. It's going to be very uh, uh, wonderful words for her, very important words for her, and he's going to give her a heart of understanding. And let's notice how it reads in verse 14. And a certain woman named Lydia, a seller of purple, the city of Thyatira, which worshipped God. Now let's notice what it says about her which worshiped God, heard us, whose heart the Lord opened. She didn't open it. Paul didn't open it. The Lord opened it. How many times you heard people go to Revelation 3.20, where it says the Lord, you know, uh, behold, the Lord stands at the door and knocks. And he says, if any man open thereof, and uh, I will come in, and I will sup with him. What do you got a picture of? First of all, we're talking about a church here. We're not talking about dead alien centers. We're talking about a church. A church is made up of born-again children of God whose heart has already been changed. This is not a heart. This is a door that he's knocking on, by the way. Then say he's knocked on the door of the heart. You think the Lord needs to knock on the door of a heart to ask permission to come in? When you read in the Bible where God just passed through closed doors and locked doors after his resurrection... You think he needs permission to come in? He never knocked on my heart to come in. He didn't ask for my permission. He just came in. <laughs> you know, <laughs> this reminds me, I saw this. It has to do with prayer. And they're praying here. And I read this little thing just a few days ago. This man wrote, and he wrote this to tell how you can make your prayers more powerful. Well, I'm always interested in that. So I thought, well, let's, let me just see what he's, he's got to say right here. And he says, when you pray, I, I, he said, I try to pray, not my will, but thine will be done, and, and pray for God's will, and one thing and another. And he says, and most of the time I really mean those words, but he says, I, I found out at the end of it, I, if I put this little phrase here, it makes my, power more, my prayer more powerful, uh, I, I say to the Lord, unless you have a better idea. Unless you have a better idea. There's nowhere in the Bible God's ever had ideas. Man operates on ideas, most of them bad. 
And even if God did, are you even thinking that he might not have a better idea? <laughs> I'm amazed. I'm just flabbergasted uh, that I would read uh, something like this. And they published it on top of that, you know, to make your prayers more popular, Lord, unless you, unless you have a better idea. Now, I might say that to you. We might be talking about something. And we get through talking about it, and I say, well, I think I'll do it unless you've got a better idea. You might have a better idea. There's no question about God. But God doesn't operate on ideas, does he? God operates on divine wisdom. He is wisdom personified. <laughs> the very idea. <laughs> anyway, we, we find here they're praying by the riverside. The Lord's opened their heart. Now, notice it says, who heard us. Uh, whose heart the Lord opened, and she attended unto the things which were spoken by Paul. The word attended means to give heed and to apply oneself. That, that's, that's your responsibility. Uh, well, mine too, but as I preach it, if I preach the word of God, if I've rightly divided the word of truth and present God's truth to you, you have the responsibility to hear it and to apply it. You need to make application of it so you can grow in grace and knowledge of the truth. Don't let it go in one ear and right out the other. <laughs> you, you let it sink in and you think about it and then you try to make an application of it that you might walk a little closer to the Lord and grow in grace and knowledge of the truth. And you're going to find that's what she does. And when she was baptized, didn't take her long to take that next step, did it? And when she was baptized, so I know whatever Paul spoke to her about, it had to include baptism. It's like when we looked about a couple of weeks back or so, uh, the baptism of the eunuch by Philip. When Philip got through preaching Christ, the eunuch says, well, here's water. What doth hinder me from being baptized? And he said, if thou believest all thine heart, thou mayest. And he went down the water and he baptized him. Lydia attended. She made application of the preaching of Paul here. And she was baptized and her household. Now, the scripture does not teach <laughs> household salvation. In other words, by that, some people teach this, that the head of a household can act as a proxy, that the head of a household can do certain things and it will apply to everybody in the household. I want you to understand here this morning, everything about you and your relationship with God is personal and individual. When God chose you in Christ before the foundation world, which he did, known as the doctrine of unconditional election, he chose you personally, and he chose you individually. When God died on the cross, he died for you. He died for the elect family of God, but he died for you personally and individually. When he born you of the Spirit of God, he born you personally and individually. That's illustrated so clearly when Jesus went to the grave of Lazarus and spoke Lazarus' name to come forth. It's been said, and I certainly agree, if he'd have just said, come forth, every grave in the cemetery would have opened up. That'd been a general call, wouldn't it? He didn't make a general call. He made a personal call. He called personally and individually to Lazarus, and Lazarus, and only Lazarus, came forth out of that grave. Find that illustrated in the life of Paul when he was Saul of Tarsus on the Damascus Road. There were others around Saul when the Lord spoke to him. But he didn't speak to everybody. Wonder why. If the Lord took the Lord to born Saul of Tarsus, the Spirit of God, he could have born all of them with the Spirit of God, couldn't he? But he didn't. Now, they may have already been born of the Spirit of God. I don't know. But they heard the voice but saw no man because God spoke personally and individually to Saul of Tarsus. When he said, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? 
it's hard for thee to kick against the pricks, we find something took place in the life of Saul of Tarsus. A change had taken place, you see. So Lydia here, the Lord opened her heart that she attended to the things that Paul spoke. And he must have spoke about baptism because she now is baptized and she, her household that was with her must have been born again children of God because the Bible does not teach infant baptism. It teaches a believer's baptism. A person must be old enough and can understand adequately enough uh, who Jesus Christ is and he's the son of God and what he did on Calvary when he died for your sins and put them away as far as the east is from the west and can make a personal individual profession of faith. When you join the church, you just join for yourself. You don't join for anybody else. <laughs> if somebody else uh, in your family wants to become the member of the household of faith, they have to make their own profession of faith. Uh, discipleship is personal and individual. If you have a, a walk with the Lord and you entered into discipleship, that's personal and that's individual, you see. Now, after this takes place, notice what she does. And when she was baptized in her household, she besought us, beseeched us, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord. Well, he's only known her a little while. So what's the judgment of her being faithful about? It's about her attending to what he said. He saw the evidence of her life. Her heart was open. She heard them. She attended those things. She was baptized. So at least up to this period of time, she has been faithful to do what the Word of God said. If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, not to you, but to the Lord, Come into my house and abide there. And she constrained us. <laughs> uh, you know, again, that word constrained is such a strong word. It means she was persuasive. It, it means that she was convincing. Um, uh, you know, that's a lot of difference between that kind of, you know, invitation, so to speak, and one that's just casual, off the cuff. I, I know the difference between the two, don't you? I trust that you do. And she constrained them to come in. She enjoyed hearing his words. She received a blessing in being obedient. She was baptized. She didn't want it to end. <laughs> she didn't want it to end, did she? You know, uh, sometimes you, in times past, I don't know if they do it anymore because I hardly ever see one. And in a movie, when it, comes, when it finishes, it'll go across the screen, the end. And sometimes you think, hallelujah, thank, thank the Lord for that. That's all of that. Uh, but uh, there are times, brethren, that I don't want things to end. There are times I don't want things to end. When we end today, if it were practical, I'd like for it to continue another hour or two. If it were practical, I'd like to stay around a while, you know, and have more of the same. Uh, I don't want to see the end come. But I tell you, there's one end I'm looking forward to. It's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. When the Apostle Paul said, uh, you know, Christ is the first fruits of them that slept, he said, then cometh the end. <laughs> there is an end coming. He said, then cometh the end. I'm looking for that end. I'm glad, I'll be glad to see when that end takes place. But right here, she don't want this experience to end. She's had a wonderful experience, a glorious experience. She don't want it to end. So she wants him to abide. She constrained him, and so it did. Now, uh, here is something interesting in this chapter. We're going to get to a jailer, known as Philippian jailer, but I want you to notice how Paul got there. After this was all over, notice verse 16, and it came to pass as we went to prayer, here's prayer again, a certain damsel possessed with a spirit of divination met us 
which brought her masters much by soothsaying, which means she was a fortune teller, which was uh, for, strictly forbidden by God in the Old Testament. The same followed Paul in us and cried, saying, in us, here's Luke, saying, these men are the servants of the Most High God, which show us the way of salvation. You know, you know she told the truth? Here are two things she stated. Both things are true. They were the servants of God. And in their preaching, they had been showing the way of salvation. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ, way, W-A-Y. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man come to the Father except by me. He, and no doubt Paul had pointed that truth out. She's telling the truth, even though she uh, is possessed with a spirit of divination. But notice here. And this she did many days. But Paul being grieved... I'm not sure what he was grieved about. I think one thing, he's probably grieved knowing that this woman, even though she was stating the truth, was possessed with an evil spirit, with a wicked spirit. And he didn't want somebody like that giving testimony, trying to aid his labors. (laughs) You see that? Even though what she was saying was right today, who knows what she might be saying tomorrow. All right? And so Paul being grieved about this, He said, I command thee in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out the same hour. Miracle. And when her master saw that the hope of their gains was gone, they caught Paul and Silas and drew them into the marketplace unto the rulers. Notice here, they didn't get Luke and they didn't get Timothy, but they got Paul and Silas. They were the main spokesmen, Paul in particular. And brought them to the marriage saying, These men, being Jews, do exceedingly trouble our city. Now, Paul was a Jew, but Paul was also a Roman. And Paul here could have played that card if he wanted to. He didn't here. He'll play it later. His magistrate didn't take time to investigate to know this man, while he might be a Jew, was also a Roman. If they'd have known that, they wouldn't have treated Paul the way they did. It says, they teach, they trouble our city, teach customs which are not lawful to us to receive, neither to observe being Romans. We're Romans. They're Jews. They're teaching things contrary to what we, uh, you know, uh, to our laws and our customs. And the multitude rose up together against them, and the marriage rent off their clothes and commanded to beat them. Their clothes was torn off of them. They were beaten. Notice verse 23. And when they laid many stripes upon them. Now, this is the first time I believe that uh, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 about all of his trials. And he speaks about three times he was beaten with rods. Here's the first time of those three times he's talking about he was beaten with rods. He could have said right then, I'm a Roman citizen, and it would have stopped. But he didn't. He, he, didn't, uh, he didn't exercise that, uh, that right. And when they laid many stripes upon them, they cast them into prison, charging the jailer to keep them safely. Now the jailer comes to our attention, who having received such a charge, thrust them into the inner prison and made their feast fast in the stocks. I believe this prison had different chambers, and they're cast as far back in the prison as possible, and their feet are in stocks. Now, if you can, you've seen pictures of that, I'm sure, and maybe in movies or one thing or another, this, these wooden contraptions or structures. And they got holes at the bottom. Sometimes their hands were in. Sometimes their feet were in a boat. And sometimes their neck was there. And it came down upon them. All it says here was their feet was in the stocks. But it made them immobile. They're right here now. They can't do anything. Or can they? They can't do anything. Or can they? They could. And they did. 
And at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God and the prisoners heard them. There was no light, but Paul and them knew the hymns well enough to sing them. <laughs> Anybody can sing in the daytime when you got the light and you can see the words and you can see the notes. But it takes something special to sing at nighttime when you can't see the words and you can't see the notes. And the kind of songs I'm talking about and Job spoke in Job 35.10 were songs that God gives in the night. Notice, it's God gives them. And he gives them in the night. In Psalms 42.8, David speaks like this. He says, but God commanded the loving kindness in the daytime and at night he giveth us songs. He says, and my prayer is unto him that I belong to. When do the songs come? They come at night. God sends the songs at night. It may be daytime, but it might be night season in your life. But I'm telling you, uh, the songs of God, the hymns of God that you've sang so many times in, 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 in your life, God can bring one of them to mind, and you can sing it. <laughs> you know, uh, it might be, uh, you might be a one for you and a different one for me. But I'm telling you, it's God who gives songs in the night. And you find where Paul and Silas are praying and they're singing at midnight, symbolic of the darkest time that there possibly can be. Now, they've just been beaten tremendously. And they're in the prison, in a prison, their feet are fast in the stocks. And yet they're singing and praising God. I'm telling you, songs and praise are a wonderful, powerful combination. No matter where you're at, no matter what you're going through, God is worthy of praise, my friends. God's been good to you, and God's been good to me. And God is always good. He's good all the time, is he not? How that God comes to us in the midnight hour, how God comes and gives us that strength and that courage that Brother Tim was talking about. When we're weak, God gives us strength. When we are fearful, God gives us courage. When we're confused, God gives us clarity of mind and gives us direction that we need to walk in or whatever. When we call upon him, he is near. We can reach out and touch him. And in the midnight hour, Paul and Silas, they're praying. And Almighty God's going to answer that prayer. Notice what takes place and what happens. And suddenly there was a great earthquake. <laughs> Not just an earthquake. It's a great earthquake. So that the foundations of prison were shaken. Now, I've never been in an earthquake. Maybe Brother Larry and Sister Basha have. They come from earthquake country, California. <laughs> but anyway, I've never been in an earthquake. Don't care to be. I've seen enough of them on television, one thing or another. I'm quite uh, satisfied to know that's not what I want to experience. But I've seen the windows break and the, and the roof and the walls begin to shake and, and, and the furniture sliding around and one thing or another. But I never have seen anything about the foundation. But in this case, the foundation of the prison is shaken and yet the prison remains intact. And I believe this earthquake happened only right there where the prison is at. And we'll look at that in just a moment. But now what do we see? Doors are opened. God closed uh, some doors. He opened some doors. He opened uh, the heart of Lydia. And now he's going to open up the prison doors. And all the doors were open. Not just one or two, but all the doors were open. Everyone's bands were loosed. Even though their feet had been in the stocks, what did the earthquake do? It loosed their bands. He got them out of the stocks. <laughs> and, um, and the key for the prisoner, waking out of his sleep, it woke him up. And seeing the prison doors open, he drew out his sword, would have killed himself, supposing the prisoners had been fled. Now, he supposed something that didn't happen. 
He's ready to take his life. You say, well, Brother Lawrence, why would he take his life? This is very important in studying this lesson. Because when a prisoner was charged with keeping the prisoners as he was, if they escaped on his watch, then he would have to suffer the punishment that was going to be inflicted on the prisoners. And so I have no doubt that some of those other prisoners, besides Paul and Silas, see, there's Paul and Silas, there's other prisoners. I'm convinced some of those other prisoners were guilty and, and was waiting capital punishment and would have been slain in one way or another. You go back and read Acts chapter 12 when Peter was in prison. You'll find that God delivered him out of that prison. And when Herod inquired for Peter, came the next day to get him, couldn't find him, he examined the keepers of, those prison, the, the keepers of that prison. And when he did and found that Peter escaped, he had all them killed and slain. Rather than face that, the keeper of this prison pulled his sword. He's going to slay himself. But Paul's going to save his life. Verse 28, but Paul cried with a loud voice saying, do thyself no harm, we're all here. That must have shocked him. The prison doors are open and everybody stayed. Nobody left. Nobody fled. <laughs> Nobody escaped. Who doesn't escape? <laughs> if you're guilty and you're in prison and you know that probably the next day or two you're going to leave this world and the doors are open, why would you stay? But they did. How did, I wonder what accounted for that. The constraining grace of God caused men to act contrary to what they normally would act. It had to startle this, uh, this uh, keeper of the prison. When he heard Paul, he says he called for a light and he sprang in. Can you picture this? He called for a light and he just sprang in. <laughs> oh, man. He just sprang in and came trembling and fell before Paul and Silas. And brought them out and says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now, this is presented time and time again as if the Philippian jailer was unregenerated. And he's asking, what can I do to be saved eternally? Now, give me one thing right here that indicates that. Not one. He's about to slay himself, about to kill himself. Paul said, don't do it. Do no harm. We're all here. He's startled. He comes in. He addressed them now as sirs. Just the night before, he saw them as common prisoners. And he saw they had been beaten severely. And he gave a charge, put them into the inner prison, which he did. But now he addresses them with great respect. Sirs, what must I do to be saved slash delivered? That's what the word means. Always remember that. It'll help you in your interpretation. What must I do to be saved slash delivered? What can I do to be delivered from the penalty no doubt that's going to come upon me for all the doors to be opened? What did Paul say? They said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved in thy house. You know, your house does the same thing. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you shall be saved, you shall be delivered. I'm telling you, the Lord Jesus Christ not only is our Savior for eternity, who saved us from our sins and saved us from hell to heaven, but by, watch, by, by following the words of the Lord Jesus Christ and obeying them, they'll save you from a lot of heartache right here in this world, a lot of trouble and trials and tribulations that you don't have to experience. The Lord has saved me, I believe, from my sins when he died for me on Calvary. But I'm going to tell you here this morning, the Lord Jesus Christ has saved me many times since then. The Lord Jesus Christ has protected me. The Lord Jesus Christ has delivered me. 
I do try to follow what the Bible teaches. I may fall short about it, but I know through doing that, the good Lord, my friends, has promised never to leave me nor forsake me, and I know the Lord has delivered me many, many times. I can't tell you how many times I've had to go through Atlanta. That ought to say enough about it right there. For the last two weeks, I've had to go through it and come back through it. And boy, I'm on the road and I'm making good time. I look at my GPS, 25-minute delay coming through Atlanta. When you get on the other side in Marietta, another 17-minute delay in Marietta, 49-minute delay here and there. You better take I-285 West around Atlanta, so I take it around Atlanta. Try my best to get through, get it behind me, my rearview mirror. I tell you, the Lord knows when I need patience because he sends me to Atlanta. <laughs> I believe that. <laughs> By the time I'm really needing uh, to, to sharpen my prayer life up and to have some patience in life, God sends me through Atlanta. Here's his instructions. And they spake unto him the word of the Lord and to all that were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes and was baptized. <laughs> he and all his straightway had to be enough water around there somewhere uh, to get them all under. And he baptized them. And when he brought them in his house, he set meat before them and rejoiced, believing in God with all his house. Isn't that a wonderful picture? <laughs> Just the night before, uh, he was exercising his duty as a Roman jail keeper. And he might even treat them rough. I don't know. And put him in that inner prison. And now the very next day he's done, uh, heard the word of God. He's believed the word of God. He's been baptized in the water. And now he's washed their stripes. And now they sat down to eat. And they're just rejoicing in the Lord. <laughs> Ever had any experiences like that? One minute you're just going through, you know, troublesome times. And the next minute God hears your prayer and God delivers you. Maybe just through a gospel message, through a firm handshake, maybe through a, you know, encouraging word, a card in the mail, a gift or whatever from somebody. And then you see God's blessings just being poured out in a certain service and somebody joins a church and your heart's lifted up and your spirit's lifted up. And first thing you know, you forget about the stripes. Uh, you know, uh, Paul and them, uh, I don't know, I know it had to hurt, but I believe right there in that moment, they probably forgot all about the beating, forgot all about the stripes <laughs> and all the suffering they'd gone through. They no doubt consider themselves uh, blessed to be worthy to suffer shame and punishment for the Lord and Jesus Christ. And they see the deliverance of this Philippian, uh, this Philippian jailer. See, the Lord knew that Philippian jailer. He knew all about him. And he sent Paul down there... I guess you caught a while ago that woman who had the spirit of divination. It was when Paul cast her out, the, the spirit out that her master saw their gain had been lost. It made them mad. And that's when they took them before the magistrates and had them beaten and put in prison. So the Lord's got all kind of ways in me to bring things about. Now listen to this as we close. And when it was day, the magistrates sent the sergeant saying, let those men go. I don't think they even knew an earthquake had ever occurred that night. That's why I believe the Lord's had that earthquake happen just right here in this building, right here, but not there and not there, just right here in this one small location, right here where the prison was. I guess they talked about it during the night and they come to realize, well, you know, 
we condemn these men and we really didn't have the proof to condemn them, we better just let them go. And the keeper of the prison, oh, he was happy, no doubt, told this saying to Paul, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Now, therefore, depart and go in peace. You can go. Paul said unto them, they have beaten us openly, uncondemned, being Romans. Paul plays his Roman card right here. And have cast us into prison. And now do they thrust us out privily, that is privately? They, they beat us publicly. They condemned us publicly when they had no right to do it. And they're going to send us out? He says, no, we're not going to do that. He said, let them come themselves and fetch us out. And the sergeants told these words to the magistrates, and they feared when they heard that they were Romans, which they would have known if they had checked it out earlier, and now would not have been in this embarrassing situation that they find themselves in. And they came and besought them and brought them out and desired them to depart out of the city. they real polite now. <laughs> oh, they're real nice and kind and polite they come and said, you know, we, we want you to leave. Now, you, you know, you go ahead. You, you can go whenever you want to now. The night before, they had the rod just beating the fire out of them, just beating the tar out of them, so to speak. But now they take them by the hand and say, will you leave? <laughs> will you go? But before they go, he did one more important thing. Verse 40. And they went out of the prison and entered into the house of Lydia. Lydia comes back to our attention. And when they had seen the brethren, they comforted them and departed. When they had seen the brethren, Paul and Silas and Luke and Timothy are still concerned about the brethren more than concerned about themselves. That's what true Christianity is all about. When you're more concerned for your brother than you are yourself, or your sister more than you are yourself. And they had been beaten. They'd spent a night in that prison. They had no light. They were in darkness. They didn't know what the next day was going to bring. They didn't know what the decision was going to be. And so they prayed and praised God at midnight. And God shook that prison, my friends, and those doors opened up. And we found how God miraculously delivered them out of that prison. And when they had an opportunity to go, they didn't take it. They made sure that they went out in the public eye. They went out in the daytime. They wanted a church established there. And they wanted a solid testimony. And before they left, they went back to Lydia's house. They'd found a place where they can go. And they went there. It says that they comforted the brethren. And once they'd accomplished that, then they left. And this is how the church at Philippi got started. When you read the book of Philippians, you'll notice that Paul seems to be just a little bit clearer, nearer and dearer to them and them to him than perhaps some of the rest of them because he'd had such a glorious and wonderful experience here. God opened up the heart of Lydia. He opened up the prison doors for the Philippian jailer. 